We're going to do a little bit of reading tonight. I'm going to read enough of this to be sure we've got it covered adequately. Um, <coughs> I have 12 weeks to cover things to come, and one of them's already gone. One of them's already behind us. There are introductory matters. There always are. Um, we are going to analyze our subject according to three groups. And I mentioned this last week, I'm quite sure. The church, the Jews, the Gentiles, the church of God. Now, <clears throat> today we're going to deal substantially with some, we're going to finish with introductory matters. We're going to hit the ground running next week. And hang on. Uh, <clears throat> there's a lot of material to cover. I'm going to try to do it in such a fashion, pace it so that we get through what we need to get through, and if we need to go back and give more attention to certain things, we can. Most people approach, most people that have any reason to look at Scripture concerning biblical prophecy tend to do it this way. Uh, tell me what's going to happen to me. I mean, tell me what's going to happen. And tell me what's going to happen to me. I mean, where do I fit? And very often, those things fall under the same umbrella. Well, you're, tell me what's going to happen when I get to Alabama beginning of the fall quarter. If you're Jalen, you will not be asked to try out for wide receiver. You will be at Alabama, I think, right? Is that pretty much a done deal? Okay. Um, she will not be asked to try out for wide receiver. She's not going to be in the locker room. She's, the coaches are not going to give her, be giving her wide receiver drills. Matriculating through Alabama? Yeah. Different priorities, different major, different path. But she's going she's to march when the rest of her graduating class marches if everybody finishes on time. And that analogy will serve as far as we need it to. <clears throat> but she's not going to play football, and I don't know what else she's going to do. She's pretty bright. But some of those football players may never have her in any classes. But they're both matriculating through that academic uh, path. <clears throat> Tell me what's going to happen, what's going to happen to me. Well, <clears throat> we're going to attempt to do that. We suggested last week, it is overly ambitious to think that we will answer every question that may arise concerning prophecy. We will be able to tell you, and I think for the believer, it seems to me, Pastor, I don't know if you would differ with this. I'd be surprised if you did, but you may have a reason for differing. Um, I, my feeling is that these people who are, to the best of my knowledge, all identify as church saints. We need to satisfy their, their legitimate curiosity with respect to Scripture about what's ahead for the Church of Jesus Christ, right? Now, they may have some friends that are unbelievers, and as such, um, if they're, well, <laughs> the Jews, the Gentiles, the Church of God, God makes in Scripture a particular distinction with respect to Israel this way, and Paul uses it. The Israel of God. There may be ethnic Jews. They may trace their ethnicity through, I mean, just as carefully and as explicitly as you could, you could hope. They may not belong to the Israel of God. They may be unbelieving Israel. Um, we're going to have some regrettable things to say about them. If they are the Israel, if they are 
If you're a believer today, please, be candid with me. Don't feel intimidated. If you're a believer today, you are a member of the church of Jesus Christ. You're not a Jew. I don't care how, how genuine your ethnic stock is. You're not a Jew. Is that, is that, are we all reasonably comfortable with that? We can take the time to demonstrate that if we need to, but wouldn't surprise me if everybody, nobody recoils at that. You're, you're, you're a church saint. You're a New Testament grace believer. And by the way, when we say New Testament, we'll be definitive. When we say New Testament, yes, we do mean New Covenant. And so for those of you here and for those listening at home, New Covenant, New Testament grace believer. This is the dispensation, the one in faith as our pastor, and dig out the, the audio if you need to, carefully elucidated Sunday. It is the one in faith. So grace and faith are particular, have particular significance for the day in which we live. We are grace believers. Grace believers. And, well, what do you know? Stick around another hour and the pastor is going to be unfolding some of that for us. Okay. Um, New Testament, New Covenant. Jeremiah 31. I'm looking at you, young man. What do you think? Do you mind me putting you on the spot with your mom here? Jeremiah 31, New Covenant. Make a new covenant with the house of Israel. What are you, what are you thinking? Yes, no, maybe what? Not, not, okay, good. I mean, he's being real candid. He's careful. He's careful. There is a new covenant in Jeremiah 31, but that is not a new covenant for the grace believer. The new covenant for the grace believer is pretty clearly mapped out in 2 Corinthians 3. Now, I'll put you on notice that is not something clearly understood by many, many segments within the evangelical Christian church today. And it is not correctly taught. Very much. It's not broadly taught. Pastor, apart from a handful of churches, do you expect you're going to hear that any place? You walk in and sit down on your haunches and open your Bible. No, I would not either. New Testament grace believers. So, if you trace your ethnicity through Jewish stock, and you have been saved by grace through faith, you are not a Jew. You're a church saint. And by the way, Scripture in at least one place calls that a race the same way that the Old Testament calls the nation of Israel a race. And we'll show you, if not tonight, we'll show you in days to come. Now, Last week we made clear, I hope, with emphasis, that it is going to be extremely important to differentiate, to distinguish, to develop some sort of metric so that you are always aware that we must, we must disciplinedly approach the study of Scripture literally. As opposed, and particularly in this study, in contra-sharp contradistinction to the allegorical method. Okay? And we made some broad points last week. We're going to emphasize them again this week. I want, by the time we leave here, and I'm going to do my best in the remaining, what, 45 minutes, Carl? 
46, <laughs> to make this, to emphasize this so that you will at least have a place to go back. Now, you don't need more notes than you have. I think I distributed five pages of notes or thereabouts. I have embellished this a little bit. I'm going to make sure I make some points that are not emphasized in the notes, but you'll be able to tag with them. Allegorical as opposed to literal. The allegorical or spiritualizing method of interpretation was prominent in the church for about a thousand years. This is going to be down, I don't know, maybe a page into what we distributed last week. Um, until it was displaced during the Reformation. Now, last week we made the point that they had to revert to a disciplinedly literal approach to Scripture in order to get the particulars of salvation clear. The believer ought to be able to go to Scripture and with plainness read for himself what is necessary for salvation by grace through faith. And Paul makes that to be the content of the New Testament gospel for initial salvation. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. How that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was buried. He died. He died. We're going to be liberal with that. He died. The precious blood, the new covenant by my blood, he died. He did not have to be resurrected from sleep. He was dead. His human body died. You can't kill deity, so the, the deity of Christ cannot be killed, but his body died, and in his person, you don't bifurcate, you don't separate the person. So humanity, deity, in one person, separated for a time voluntarily from the Father and from the Son. It's inscrutable. It's beyond my understanding, but Scripture teaches it. I have to accept it. His humanity died both physically and spiritually. The pastor's gone over that numerous times. I think it's been embellished by Courtney, Don, and others. He died spiritually and physically <clears throat> to cover everything that's necessary to get you saved. He died, he was buried, he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. He ascended into heaven and he was received and invited to sit down till his enemies be made his footstool. He is God most high, but he is now also, because he's still God and man, his humanity was not deified, so he is the God-man in the heavenlies. There is a glorified man. He still possesses humanity. His humanity was not deified. But in his deity... He has all the characteristics and all the essentials of deity. Inscrutable. Scripture teaches it. We believe it. There's a God-man in the heavenlies. There's a glorified man in the heavenlies. The Gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. That is necessary content for you to know and believe if you will be saved. It is to be viewed literally. The Reformation, the Reformers said, we got to clean this up. Thank God for the ones that were ahead of the game. They had to clean it up because there was a lot of error. 
Here's the problem. Some of the same churches that were at the forefront, some of the same broad denominations that were at the forefront of that effort dropped the ball with respect to prophecy and other things. Okay, broadly stated, allegorical interpretation looks for a deeper spiritual meaning within the text. While not necessarily denying that the text has a literal meaning, well, they'll say it has a literal meaning, but Michael, Debbie, uh, you two back there, you got to come to me and ask me what scripture means because you're young, right? You may have been a believer longer. You've probably been a believer longer than Troy, so we're going to let you slide, but he's, oh my word, how many years have you been a believer? Four? Oh, 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 son, don't be drawing any conclusions. Listen, get with me. I'll explain it to you, Lucy. Deeper meaning. We approach it on a continuum, it seems. I'm 70, I'm almost 72 years old. I've been doing this for a long time. doesn't necessarily make me an expert. But I've done it a lot. I've listened a lot. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Nothing. To the allegorist. There is a spiritual... Otherwise... The brand new believer could just pick this stuff up and uh, be self-taught. We know the deep things of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. Why? Those can't be understood by a child, can they? Well, to be sure, some of them can't. They need to be taught. But the fact of the matter is, God has not promised you that I will effectively teach you. He's taught you He's told you in Scripture that if you will make yourself, comport yourself obediently and make yourself available to Scripture, God the Spirit will teach you. Well, I better get with Dan so God the Spirit can teach me. No, get with the Scripture. Turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. We'll do this very quickly. 1 John 2, verse 20. Anointing is a word that's translated in the old, from the Hebrew and also from the Greek. We're just going to look at a, a New Testament reference here. Um, my little children, verse 18, it is the last time, and as you have heard, and by the way, Paul addresses a number of groups here. He addresses young men, young learners. He also addresses spiritual men. <clears throat> here, Little children, I think this is a word for, this is paideia. This is the young learners. This is young inquisitive learners. Sometimes there's an implication of immaturity, but not necessarily. They're young. They need to be taught. Um, and he cautions them about some that have been among them. They went out from us, verse 19. They were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might make manifest that they were not all of us. Now verse 20. But you have an unction. This word occurs twice in 1 John. 1 John 2, verse 20, 1 John 2, verse 27. And in both cases, we won't do the lexical work longhand here. It is a gifted enabling. A gifted enabling. And when God is in view, God is the one doing the gifting. God is the one doing the enabling. And that definition will serve for Old Testament texts as well. The king 
had an anointing. He had a particular gifted enabling. He had an enabling and the power to get it done. The prophet did and the priest did. They had anointing. You have an anointing if you are a believer. And in the context of 1 John 2, it's very clear that it has to do with your ability to be effectively taught by the one that Jesus in the upper room promised would do the teaching. Who is that? It's not me. It's not Pastor Kevin. It's not Don. It's not Courtney. It's God the Spirit. We were gifted to kind of get involved in the process if we'll do our study and make ourselves available. And I'm telling you, that's a tall order. That's a tall order for me. <laughs> but God is going to teach you. Here's the proof of it. He's promised he will. 1 John 2, verse 20. 1 John 2, verse 27. There is a large group among nominally evangelical Christendom, not all of whom are genuine Christians, I don't believe, that believes that laymen cannot study the Scripture without help. Don't you learning, Troy? You know what Joe from Mims is learning? He's learning the tools. Learning how to use the tools. You know what Joe can do? Joe can use the tools in his garage because I've seen the work in uh, Lynn's uh, front yard. He knows how to do finish work. He learned to use some tools. You know why he shows up on Sunday for fellowship, but also to be taught how to use the tools to study the Word. He's right now in the process of buying a study Bible, which he's researched very carefully. Why? He wants to know how to use the tools. This is targeted to him. It's targeted to you. It's targeted to anyone else in here who has accepted Christ as personal Savior and wants to be taught and will comport himself obediently with respect to it. You have an enabling. <clears throat> you have a gifted ability to be taught. You don't have to be told that there is a deeper spiritual meaning that, by the way, you're not going to get yourself, so don't even bother. Let me help you with it. It's not plain in the text. You have to search for something that's really hidden. Anything been hidden in, in Scripture, Pastor? A couple things. Is there a word in Scripture that describes hidden things? Yes, there is. Mystery. And you know what? In every context in which you read that word, you see some sort of explanation of what that mystery is. If it's a New Testament mystery, it's explained. It was previously hidden. It's now revealed. It's been explained in Scripture. Where do you go to find the answer for it? Not to your pastor. You go to Scripture. Look at the context in which that term mysterion occurs. We will look at the term mystery as it applies to things to come. That's going to be a, a technical term we have to look at. Allegorical interpreters look for deeper symbolic meaning. The Song of Solomon, according to Schofield, interpreted allegorically as referring to the love that Christ has for the church. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. We're not going to spend time here, but it's not. Not unless you insist on imposing an allegory over the Song of Solomon. number of other explanations for the Song of Solomon make more sense than to find the New Testament church, which Solomon didn't even know about, and inserted into the Song of Solomon. That makes the Song of Solomon much more, shall we say, interesting to New Testament saints. And you will find good commentators who take this view, reject it. It is not based on a sound hermeneutic. Hermeneutic, 
the art and science of interpretation, particularly as it applies to Scripture. So, we do not accept that the Song of Solomon typifies the church. Um, most famous instance of allegorical interpretation is origin. We talked about this last week, Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I gave you all kinds of fanciful notions that origin propounded. Nonsense. Put it in its historical context. What would it have meant to the people who read it in their culture, in their day? It would not have meant what Origen thought it meant. Moving on. Allegory is beautiful and legitimate literary device. Okay. Now this came from a, a, a site that I will recommend broadly for history, for uh, factual stuff. It's not a bad place to look. Don't take your, your spiritual counsel from Got questions. That's the that's the site. They make the point. John Bunyan is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. We talked about this last week. Here's what I'm gonna say about John Bunyan's Pilgrim Pilgrim's Progress. Who's read it, or at least part of it? Okay. Anybody not read it? Have you not read it? You know, Joyce and Kevin, as a children's story, what do you think? It's pretty good reading. I'm telling you, rather read that than uh, what? I don't know, Wizard of Oz. We never did see the Wizard of Oz all the way through because we had to go to church on Sunday night and that was always on Sunday. But it's better than maybe Aesop's fairy tales, you know, Aesop's fables. Listen carefully, folks. Because, precisely because Pilgrim's Progress is allegorical, and this is going to set the teeth of some people listening on edge, it is not accurately instructive concerning the reality of the Christian life under grace. Preacher, am I safe so far? Because it's allegorical. He strove mightily. There's not a word in there about how to recognize the strong desire that precedes temptation. And heaven knows you got a lot of temptation. You know it if you read it. I haven't looked at it in recent years, but I don't think there's any careful breakdown of James chapter 1 and the sequence from strong desire to temptation. How you would differentiate between temptation from his two buddies that were off to the fair, the carnival barkers and everything. You got the world, the flesh, and uh, our adversary, the devil. Those are your enemies. They're identified in Scripture. There's not a word in Pilgrim's Progress about how to have victory over those three enemies. Not that I saw. There's not a word about reckoning yourself to be... Because Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory and it is manifestly an allegory. It is confusing. Let's move on. There's little difference between allegorical, typological, and symbolic interpretation. They all look for a deeper meaning behind what would seem to be a literal reading of the text. I'm going to stop here. I quoted this guy. I didn't want to change the quote because I put it in your paper and I source cited it. <clears throat> I object. Allegorical, typological, symbolical, and in another place, figurative. Boom, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Those are all literary devices. You can study them if you pull out a high school English textbook, literature textbook. 
They're legitimate literary devices. They are not to be regarded as interchangeable. An allegory is an allegory because it's an allegory. It is not a metaphor. Allegory and metaphor are not synonyms. They describe different shades of meaning with respect to, now I'm not, a, I'm not an English literature major, but on a continuum of figurative language, nobody knows what the allegory means. You got to go to English, you got to go and study under Richard Hawkins or Richard Schaefer or somebody who studied this to get some hints of what it means and then there's going to be a lot of discussion. You're going to have 30 other people in here all who have strong opinions about what the allegory means. What does the raven mean? Edgar Allan Poe, does anybody know? I mean, I quote the raven nevermore. I haven't read it in 100 years, but I mean, oh, I think it means... What's the train in Anna Karenina? Don't answer because it's a little bit salty, but uh, if you've read Anna Karenina, you know what uh, he intended by the train, or at least the people reading that that surging locomotive, that, you know, let's leave it at that. I was in an English class, Nikhil. Raise your hand. I don't get it. Let's see me after class. That was a Western, by the way. What does it mean? Let's, let's charge tuition and get an instructor to give us some idea what this has to mean by the symbols, what symbols are. Listen, let me jump to something here. To observe that passages may need to be interpreted figuratively is not the same as saying they are equally open to any and all literary devices. There is an allegory in Scripture. For my money, there is one allegory in Scripture. Does anybody except Kevin and maybe Joyce and know where it is? Anyone? Well, that's fascinating because it's called an allegory. It's identified by the one who wrote the text. It's called an allegory. There are types in Scripture. That's another term that has particular relevance to scriptural study. We're going to it belongs in this analysis, but all, my only mention is going to be, be careful what you call a type that Scripture doesn't call a type. I'll quickly add, there's an allegory in Scripture. It's an allegory. We're not going to argue about it. It's an allegory. And by the way, <laughs> you went to seminary. You've been kind of diligent. Did you figure out what the allegory was in Galatians 4? Or did you have to go ask Dave or Dr. Schaefer or, or uh, some high-flown? Do you remember? Yeah. I, it, I didn't have to ask anyone. Uh, why not? Because <laughs> the one who told us it's an allegory, Paul told us what the allegory was and what the value of these symbols in the allegory was, were. Explain it. We didn't have to go to Harvard. didn't have to go to some grad course in the English literature. You didn't have to counsel with a reading club. Paul, Paul, there's a, there's a great push to reinterpret Paul. You know what? 
we got too many other better things to do than to reinterpret, oh, well, we don't like, it's not interesting enough. It doesn't fit. Yeah, well, the allegory in Galatians is explained in Galatians 4. It's identified in Galatians 4. There's a mystery, and it's explained. Just because you observe that there is figurative language in Scripture does not mean that you have license to impose allegory over every text in Scripture wherein you see figurative language. Does symbolism demand that we treat it as an allegory? No. I'm moving down through some definitive statements that I made here to kind of pace myself. A metaphor is not an allegory. A metaphor is not necessarily a, a, a simile. And just because something is figurative doesn't necessarily mean you can, equi with equivalency, call it both a synonym, I mean a simile, and a metaphor. And oh, by the way, those are both allegories. They're not. You'll flunk your English class. Jesus' use of symbolism in the upper room at the Last Supper is consistent with every narrative. Consistency with the allegory. Do any of you think that you could help at all help an unbeliever understand Jesus' basic reference to himself as the bread of life? You think you could, Deb? I'm sure you could. Any of you think you could not to a child? What does that mean? He calls himself the bread of God that came down from heaven, by the way, and pastor said in the last one, sometime in the last two weeks, no one had ever come from heaven and gone back to heaven. This one had. He's the bread that came down from heaven. And he said in John chapter 6 that if you ate his flesh, now he used a term for eat, other places, the term partake is used of their, what, consumption. The word partake is used in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And it can mean eat, but it can also mean assimilate. Doesn't necessarily have to mean eat. But he uses this figurative language. I don't think the disciples in the upper room were very confused after Pentecost about what Jesus meant in the upper room when he described his flesh as the bread of God. And by the way, he enlarged that a little bit when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the bread, we memorialized it last Sunday with the bread and the cup, with the loaf and the cup. We thank the Lord for it. We memorialize this obediently. We do this often until he comes. I apologize for that. I thought I programmed that to shut off. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Go there, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He calls himself the bread of God before his death, burial, and resurrection. John 16, or excuse me, John 6, verses 22 through 59. John 6, verses 22 through 59. Don't go there, but just make a note. You want to go there and, and look at that. 
in Mark 14, verses 22 through 25, he says, this is the bread. And by the way, in these narratives, there is absolute, invariable consistency in the way these are taught, the way they're communicated, and the way they're taught. Every time. There is no confusion. Then when you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. The bread of God. I am the bread of life. My to partake of me is going to produce a quality of life that will fit you to live into the ages, life eternal. And we learn as the New Testament plays out, this is a God quality of life unavailable before his death, burial, and resurrection. Unavailable apart from the person of this Savior, God the Son, the second person. And we know it literally. It does not confuse us because there is consistency in the figurative language. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 16 and 17. The cup of blessing which we bless. Kevin asked me to thank the Lord for the cup Sunday. He asked, wait a minute. You asked Kelvin to thank the Lord for the loaf. This tells you what they are. He acquainted the disciples using this metaphor before they even understood this kind of significance. But when they see this, they thought, oh yeah, that dates right back to what he told us and with consistency in what he demonstrated in the upper room. He broke the bread, he poured the cup and shared it. The cup of blessing which we bless memorializes the blood, my blood of the new covenant. And that's in the upper room narrative. Paul uses it here. Blood of the new covenant. That's why we're new covenant, New Testament grace believers. Not because of Jeremiah 31, but because of 2 Corinthians 3. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the fellowship of the blood of Christ? There's got to be some symbolism there because there's no such over and under, around and through. What? Uh, transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Sorry to those of you listening, but I'm not with you on that, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> it doesn't become the blood of Christ. It is a metaphor. It's always a metaphor. Always. For the blood, the precious blood, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, the precious blood of the sacrifice, Lamb of God, by the way, gentle Jesus, Lamb. Symbolism? <laughs> There's a lot we could say about that. His, 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 the way John saw him in Revelation chapter 1, his eyes were burning coals. And his hair was, you been there? White as wool. Here, Troy, let me tell you what that means. Um, you, you, you've, you've heard that because you're not going to get this otherwise. I mean, it's, it's, there's something deeper about this. Um, you've heard Jesus is the Lamb of God, right? Whoa! Lamb's wool. This, that, that's, that's what this is about. 
I don't do this so you can titter and, I mean, it's maybe funny. I think it's funny. But it gets tragic pretty quickly. That becomes a barrier to your ability to be taught, your ability to understand Scripture. White as wool. Eyes like coals of fire. I think we saw what John saw. John was permitted... I don't know how that happened. I don't know what went on. And I really don't care so much. But there is symbolism to those things that John communicated. And John was frightened. He was frightened. And he knew this guy. He knew the Lord Jesus intimately. He leaned on his breast at the table in the upper room. The disciple that John loved. He was terrified on the Isle of Patmos. He fell down as one who was dead. Heard a voice as... As language of similitude. Was it a trumpet? I don't know. Have you ever been sitting in a room by yourself when someone came up and blew a trumpet right by your head? Wouldn't have mattered much. Whether it was a trumpet or whether it was Joyce screaming in your ear. Wouldn't have mattered much. The sharpest blast you ever heard was a trumpet and John said it sounded like a trumpet. Maybe it did. Maybe it did. What did they hear on the Damascus Road? We don't know. We know they heard a noise. Paul's the only one that understood it, apparently. They heard noise. Frightening. John was frightened. Language of similitude. Are you confused by it? Are you confused by, by this testimony? I, I'm not. You know what, I'll bet you if you read this to Adeline, I bet you if you read this to the young kids, they'd pick it up pretty quick. Mom, you know what? I bet it was loud. You bet. You bet it was loud. <coughs> the cup that we bless, the loaf that we bless, that we part, of which we partake, and I've got other references here. In some cases, partake is partaking as in eating. In some cases, the word partake is partaking as in taking to yourself and, and owning it intimately. Language of similitude. Figurative language. I've got 1 Peter 2, 2 as newborn babes. Are you all newborn babes? No, you're not. Some of you got saved when you had gray hair. Or will. Some of the people listening, not newborn babes. Oh, I get it. Well, this is a way of, this is the Lord's way of just of seeing to us that there's a growth process. And there's much in Scripture about the growth process. As newborn babes desire, and by the way, that's an imperative. It's not saying newborn babes do desire. It's saying, you newborn babes, I want you to desire this. Desire the sincere milk of the word. Um... When was the last time you mixed a page of your Bible in your milkshake? That's a bit of figurative language. Confusing? I don't think so. <clears throat> okay, let me get through this, and then we're going to go back and look at an Old Testament passage. The problem with the allegorical method of interpretation is it seeks to find an allegorical, allegorical interpretation for every passage of Scripture. Now, justifiably, some would oppose that and say, we don't, we don't say that. Yeah, but in the main, that's the fallback position. If you don't understand it, find the allegory. Impose the allegory. Do you know how difficult it is to get some mainline denominations to agree on prophecy? 
You do. <laughs> they can't. They sure don't think it's to be interpreted literally, but land negotiation, uh, don't ask me what I mean, because, uh, well, there's room for... <coughs> There's room for there's room for varied interpretation. I don't want to seem arrogant. I don't want to, you know. Prophecy viewed that way is a content of scripture that's been estimated by some Bible students that up to twenty five percent of scripture is prophetic. Well, um, see that twenty five percent. I I I think. There, there's, there's room. I mean, good people differ on that stuff. There's not going to be very much that we study, that we communicate across this pulpit, about which Kevin and I are going to disagree. Why? Because we use the same judicial method. The same method judiciously, I should say. What would it have to mean if we took it literally? What a novel idea. Interpreters who, who allegorize can be very creative with no con controls imposed by the text, and typically the text does not. You, you read some of the stuff that... Uh, don't read it. Okay. Um, there's one allegory in Scripture. Don't call something an allegory if it's not called in Scripture an allegory. Don't call something a type unless it's called a type in Scripture. Try to make it literal. If literally it's figurative language, do the very same thing you would do with figurative language in other contexts. Where's the consistency? What does this mean? A pink Cadillac is not a head of cabbage. And there's no plain interpretation in which anybody is going to look at a head of cabbage and call it a pink Cadillac, interpretively. It simply is not. And we said earlier that our whatever your final interpretation is, there's always, you can't discuss pink Cadillacs or heads of cabbage Unless you've seen a pink Cadillac. What is a pink Cadillac? I don't know. My wife's wearing a pink blouse. No, a Cadillac. Four. Oh, yeah. Like a coaster wagon. Four wheels. No, it's got an engine and it's expensive. Okay. My wife's wedding ring is expensive. You get my point. <clears throat> um, we're going to end up. I wanted to go through Revelation 1. Wow. Prepare in the time that we're apart from you. I want you to look at 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. Because we're going to talk a little bit about interpretation. It will be necessary for us to frame an interpretive method here. We're going to help you do that. Also, you will look at... Oh, boy. Um, 2 Peter 1. Verses 16 through 21, write that reference down. No prophecy of Scripture is of its own interpretation. We're going to give you some things to think about as you decide what that might mean. Okay. <coughs> um, I'm going to go back here and have some fun with uh, Revelation 2, verse 8 through 11. 
We're going to go to 2 Kings 9, we're going to go to 1 Kings 21, we're going to go to James 4, Revelation 3, and then we'll be done. We'll do this quickly. Revelation 2, 18, excuse me, 8 through 11. Okay, Revelation 2, 8 through 11, one of the letters to the seven churches. This is to the church in Smyrna. These are seven historical churches in Asia Minor. Under the angel, we think that's probably the pastor, messenger, angel is messenger. Under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these things, say it, the first and the last, Alpha and Omega, he's introduced himself to John in chapter 1 as the Alpha and the Omega. Here he uses that same appellative. Different terms, but which was dead and is alive. This is the one that died. I had a guy trying to argue with me today that Jesus Christ is not God. He's the one that, he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's the one that was dead and is alive. That's... Interpret that literally, folks. Verse 9, I know thy works. The writer is addressing this church. And tribulation and poverty, thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried. And you may have tribulation ten days. Ten days, ten years, ten weeks, I, we're not going to decide tonight. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Verse 11. Wait a minute. We're going to go on down here to... Um, I wanted the Church of Pergamum, I think, didn't I? I wanted the Church of Pergamum. I need to go down to verse 20. The church in Thyatira. Under the angel of the church of Thyatira. Jump to verse 20. He's got a few things to commend them for, but he's also got some things to criticize them. Verse 20. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel. Wait a minute. Jezebel. We heard that name before? Jezebel? Still living? This is first, first century. Uh... Uh, thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess. Apparently, she's still living. Right? Calls herself a prophetess. She's wrought havoc in this church, a lot of mischief. Taught to seduce my servants and commit fornication. Ooh, that sounds like Jezebel. That sounds really like Jezebel. And to eat things sacrificed to idols. How can we prove this is not Jezebel? How can we prove this is figurative? Well, if you go to 1 Kings, you'll realize, and I can't do this all now in the time remaining, but Elijah made a prophecy about Jezebel. Said Jezebel would fall out. Said Jezebel would be, didn't say she'd fall out the window, I don't think. Said she would be eaten. The dogs would, this is pretty nasty. The dogs would drink her blood by the wall of what? Jezreel, I think. Well, have you seen Jezebel's security detail? Uh, they don't even have dogs in the palace. How's that going to happen? She's going to market. No, nah, I doubt it. She sent somebody to market for her. Well, if you read the text, if you read 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 30, you'll realize that Jezebel fell out the window. And guess what happened? Dogs ate most of her. They left a few body parts. I think they left the skull. You could identify her with dental records, right? Well, Troy, <clears throat> let me tell you what that means. Um, 
fornication, adultery. Look at James chapter 4 for that, where the writer of James says, you adulterers and adulteresses. I know what adultery is. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Wait a minute. What's up with that? Friendship with the world is tantamount to spiritual adultery. That's not that complicated. You don't need my help on that. You don't need my help for this. You don't need to untangle an allegory that would tell you that Jezebel didn't really die. She died, and you know what she did? She died in explicit response to Elijah's prophecy. Literally. Literally. None of the allegorists looking at the prophet's Predicted prophecy in 1 Kings 21 tries to explain Jezebel's death in 2 Kings 9 with an allegory. Let's don't start today. Let's don't start today. Let's approach these things as if we think there is content to be communicated. I had a good friend. I asked him, I said, when I found out, he's with the Lord now, when I found out there was an allegory in Galatians 4, I said, why are we so sure that the Lord didn't make use, more broad use of allegories, Jeff Hall? You know what he said? And, and he didn't have this written down anywhere. He just thought for me, he said, you know, probably because that's not a good way to communicate content. Save your allegories for entertaining literature. You don't use allegory when you're teaching your class on Saturday, once every two months or once every month or however long. The preacher doesn't use allegories Sunday morning. He is plain spoken. And that's the way we will approach this. And I'm sorry if I got a little, ra- little wound up, but that's the way we will approach this. People, if you ever think that you are being asked to believe something which you simply cannot see in the text, back it up a little bit, Sparky. And start over.